Hello and welcome to the workings of a spiritual mind. You're listening to Holly and I thank you very much for taking the time to give this episode a listen today. So today's podcast we are looking into the different types of mediumship that's out there and we're also looking into a couple of different people who are associated to those types of mediumship. Now two of those names you may be familiar with if you've listened to episode one. If you haven't feel free to go back and take a little listen. It's called An Introduction to Mediumship and it briefly describes what mediumship is, where we think it may have all started. And I listed a couple of names of people who were around in the 1800s because that was the century of when mediumship and spirituality really grew and gained popularity. And through these people, then becoming more widely known and the use of their abilities, they helped that grow. So the first is called mental mediumship. Now, I don't quite agree with that labeling because it's implying that the mind is the only thing that's being used during that mediumship. But during readings, it's the entire energy system of the medium that's being used. This is also known as evidential mediumship because the aim is for the medium to give evidence to the sitter or the loved one who's existing in the spiritual realm. It's the most common form of mediumship you will come across. And I would say a good 96, 97% of mediums will use this. It's what we've looked at before in other episodes. It's the medium raising their vibration, creating that connection to spirit through them using their clear senses of hearing, feeling, seeing, they're given that evidence of spirit by passing messages and guidance back to the sitter. So let's look at a chap called Andrew Jackson Davis, who is known for his mental mediumship work. Andrew was born in New York in 1826. His father was a shoemaker and unfortunately quite a bad alcoholic. His mother, who came from a poor background herself, she was unable to read, but she was highly religious. She had very strong views and opinions on religion. So Andrew himself, being born into a poor family who frequently moved around, he had very little schooling and so grew up with very little education. So at his earliest point in his life, when he was able to, he went out to work, becoming an apprentice for a shoemaker. At the age of 14, he started to understand that he had the gift of clairvoyancy. And at the age of 17, after attending a lecture that was given by a traveling doctor, he was able to enter a trance-like state. And through these trances and through using his clairvoyancy simultaneously, he is able to reach a higher plane of consciousness. Now, through practicing his clairvoyancy and being in these trance-like states, he was able to read books and he was able to then start describing in detail what happens to the soul at death. He was able to explain spiritualism and other metaphysical phenomena. Now, his scope of knowledge as he grew up using his abilities extended from education and health to psychology, philosophy, and even kind of like governmental type subjects. He became known as a seer in his local area, and a lot of people came to see him where he was then able to diagnose illnesses in people and prescribe them treatments. He's thought of as the first known person to actually diagnose and prescribe treatments whilst being in that trance-like state. So you can imagine in that day and age how the information suddenly got round to people that he was able to just be in that trance-like state, diagnose you with an illness and prescribe you a treatment that could potentially save your life. Now, at one point in his life, 
when he was around 18, he studied and practiced what was known as magnetic healing, which is thought of as an alternative form of medicine. And it involves using a very weak magnetic field from a magnet that's placed on different parts of the body. It's similar to electromagnetic therapy, which is also known as another form of alternative medicine, which uses an electromagnetic field generated by a power device with claims that this can diagnose and treat diseases and illnesses. Now, there is actually no proven scientific facts that this type of healing has any health benefits. Whether it's used in this day and age, I can't say I've come across that before. So given the fact that he had no education as he was growing up. When he was 21, he published a book that was called The Principles of Nature. Now, up until this point in his life, he probably had about five months worth of schooling and he read no more than half a dozen books. So a lot of the information that he was able to relay to people, he got from having that connection to spirit and being in that higher level, that high existence of consciousness. Now, throughout his lifetime, he wrote and published 30 books in 45 different editions, and his spiritual writings, including topics on the seven planes of existence, on mental and physical health, he covered astronomy, physics, chemistry, philosophy, education, in his writings about the human body and health. Andrew described how during his trance-like states, when people came to see him, how the human body became transparent to him and each organ of the body stood out very clearly with almost a luminosity around it, which then diminished in the case of a disease. So that was how he was able to relay to people of a potential disease or illness that they have and prescribe treatment for that certain disease or for that specific organ. His books opened up an entire new world and he claimed that his purpose was to help people advance in their spirituality. And so he wrote books upon books upon books of these different subjects to try and help people. Now he did pass away at the age of 83 and that was in January 1910. The next type of mediumship is what's called as physical mediumship. Now this is really quite fascinating. It's the ability to manifest physical phenomena of a spiritual person through the medium. Now that can take the form of ectoplasm. If you've heard of that before, you've probably heard that it's like a, a supernatural substance that helps spirits manifest. I've described it previously as Slimer from Ghostbusters, and I stand by that. I stand by that statement. Or the it can take the form of movement or transformation around the medium. Now this type of mediumship is really rare it takes a great deal of energy work from the medium because their body is being used. It's like a type of portal through which this phenomena manifests. I can't say I've heard of any mediums who do this type of mediumship work in this day and age, which is such a shame because it's a brilliant way to prove the existence of spiritual energy. Now, someone who was very much known for their physical mediumship is another name from episode one, and it's a chap called Daniel Dunglass-Hume. Daniel was known as a physical medium in Scotland with the reported ability to levitate, speak with the dead, and to produce rapping and knocking sounds at will. So Daniel's mother, called Elizabeth, she was actually known as a seer, 
in the era of Scotland they lived, as were many of her predecessors. And it's thought that the spiritual gift has been passed down through the family. However, they very much felt that it was a curse because it foretold instances of tragedy and death. Daniel was Elizabeth's third child and he was born in March 1833 and she had eight children in total. Now at that age of one, he was described by his mother as a very delicate child, having quite a nervous temperament. So he was passed to Elizabeth's sister called Mary Cook, who had no children of her own. And they lived in a coastal town called Portobello that was three miles outside of Edinburgh. So quite a nice little area. Now, sometime between 1838 and 1841, we don't know 100% of the specific timeline of this, but Daniel and his aunt Mary and her husband, they decided to emigrate to the United States. So they landed in New York and they travelled to Greenville in Connecticut, where they resided and made themselves a nice little home. When Daniel was in school, around the age of 13, he didn't really join in any sports games with the other boys. He preferred to take walks in the local woods with a friend called Edwin. The two boys read the Bible together and they told stories and made a pact stating that if one of them was to suddenly die, they would try and make contact after death. Now, Daniel and his Aunt Mary soon moved to a different location called Troy in New York after Mary broke up with her husband. And so he lost contact with his friend Edwin until one night when Daniel was trying to fall asleep. He saw a brightly lit vision of his friend Edwin standing at the foot of the bed, which then gave him the feeling that his friend was dead. And a few days later, a letter arrived stating that Edwin had died of dysentery three days before Daniel had this vision of him. So a few years later, Daniel and his aunt returned back to Greenville, set themselves up with a nice little house in a nice little area. But the house they lived in was reportedly disturbed by a lot of rapping noises and knocking to the extent that people were called to the house to see if they could kind of investigate what was going on from ministers to Baptists. And they all came to the strange conclusion that Daniel was possessed by the devil. Hmm. So according to the ministers and Baptists who visited at the time, the knocking didn't stop at all at the time they were there and a table started to move by itself to the point where Daniel's Aunt Mary, she put a Bible on the table and then put her full body weight on the table, but it did not stop the table moving. The noise continued to progress. It started to create unwanted attention from the neighbours. So Daniel's Aunt Mary told him to basically leave get out of the house and don't come back. Daniel held his first seance in March 1851 and that seance was actually reported in a local newspaper where it said a table moved without anyone touching it. So after this report came out, he became more well known in his area and he started travelling around giving demonstrations to people that he could communicate with the dead. Now, it was reported that in one of his demonstrations, five men who came to see him, who were of a, a fairly heavy build with a combined weight of around 850 pounds, sat on a table, but it still moved. And others claimed they saw a phosphorescent light gleam over the walls. Now, because of this frequency of objects moving and of this light that was appearing in many of his demonstrations, he started being investigated by people to see if he was genuinely a physical medium or if he was a fraud. 
The reporting of Daniel being able to levitate came in August of 1852, where he travelled to the home of a very wealthy silk manufacturer. And it was said that Daniel was seen to levitate twice and at one point rise right up to the top of the ceiling before coming back down again. And as this took place, there was aggressive movement from a table and also a lot of rapping and knocking noises in the room that became louder and more persistent. His last seance in America was in March 1855 because he then decided to travel back to England. Now, even though he came back to England, his fame continued to grow that was fueled by those reports of levitation. So over a number of years, he traveled to multiple different houses, to different places in Europe and in the UK, demonstrating these seances. But as that happened, more and more people came forward to experiment to see if they could make him out to be a fraud. So some people who came to investigate Daniel tried to come up with a way of how he was able to levitate through being placed in different positions, different angles to his audience or like dimly lit rooms that you couldn't really see what was going on with the phosphorescent light. Some reported that it was oil he would place on his hands and feet that would then glow in dimly lit rooms. During one of Daniel's seances, it was recorded by a paranormal historian who actually declared that we saw him rise from the ground slowly to a height of about six inches, where he then remained there for 10 seconds before slowly descending. Another such seance in 1867, said he levitated out of a third-story window of one room and he came back in through the window of an adjoining room in front of three witnesses. However, those three witnesses gave contradictory information about the levitation, even contradicting themselves at some point. Now, have a think about what I just said and about levitation. What do you generally feel about that? Because as much as I investigated this and I'm reading this back to you now, I'm not sure. I'm not 100%. Yes, I've seen objects move in predominantly ghost hunts. Have I seen something levitate? I can't say I have. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean to say that that doesn't ever happen. It's just not something I've ever witnessed. Have you witnessed it? So with this claim of him going out of a window and coming back, some people said it took place of around a height of 35 feet. But then it was claimed that Daniel was able to just step across a gap of four feet between two iron balconies. One investigator said that there was a 19-inch windowsill outside the window in which Daniel could probably just stand on that. Another suggested that he had a rope attached to a chimney on the roof that he was able to use that rope to move from window to window. That kind of implies then that took place at nighttime where you couldn't really see that well. Many of these investigators and skeptics criticised the lighting additions that took place during his seances because you couldn't then see 100% what exactly was going on. But given the amount of investigations, skeptics, there were many people out there who genuinely believed that he was a genuine physical medium with the ability to not only see spirits, but manifest and move objects, including himself. Now, he did retire due to ill health. He suffered for many years from tuberculosis. As that illness progressed in advance, it was said that his powers were failing. And he died on the 21st of June in 1886 at a very early age of 53. 
So the next form of mediumship is what's known as trance mediumship. Now, this is where the medium becomes an open channel and allows the spirit they're communicating with to use their voice and body to communicate with those in the physical realm. So the medium agrees to and consciously withdraws and goes into a trance-like state. That then helps to disconnect them from their logical mind, their conscious mind, which allows the spirit to then use their physical body. So the spirit may then speak through the voice of the medium, in which you may not even see the mouth moving, but the sound of the spirit comes through and it's a different voice to the medium. The same could be said for using the body. The spirit may communicate using gestures and mannerisms, hand movements that the medium would not know or even have themselves. So the gentleman we're looking into today that's associated trance medium is a chap called Leslie Flint. Leslie Flint is so fascinating to me. I'm not actually going to give you that much information because I intend on dedicating an entire episode to this man. He is just extraordinary. And you know when you come across someone that you've heard of history-wise or someone you've known through a friend or in passing, and you think to yourself, I really wish I was alive when that person was alive. I really wish I was around when they were around. This is what it's like with me for Leslie Flint. This man is just fascinating to me. So as I say, I'm only going to give you a little bit of information. So he was born in January 1911. He was an only child and he was born into poverty with his birth taking place at a Salvation Army home. He lost his parents at a very early age, estimated around four to five, after his father left the family, some say to head to the trenches, and his mother, who preferred the company of other men, travelled to London's West End, so he was ultimately raised by his grandmother. He had his first spiritual encounter at the age of seven when his deceased uncle appeared to him in the kitchen of his home, and it was around this time he began to hear spirit voices quite frequently. At the age of 12, he started doing work, odd jobs around the home. And throughout his teenage years, he did anything from working in a cinema to working as a groundskeeper in a cemetery. He was also a semi-professional dancer at one point before ultimately becoming a medium. Now, as he was growing up in his teenage years, he joined a development circle where he was encouraged to use his abilities. And at the age of 17, he held his first seance. Now, what began with Leslie being in a trance-like state? ended up with him being very much alert. So this is what is fascinating with Leslie. Trance mediumship is just that, you're in a trance. And I mentioned before that the medium disconnects from their mind to allow the spirit to come through. What happened with Leslie is that he didn't need to do that. When he was in a trance-like state, practicing and practicing, he was able to keep himself alert and wide awake and he became known as a direct voice medium. Now, direct voice is the ability to channel spiritual voices through you in a trance-like state. However, Leslie being so remarkable, didn't need to be in that trance-like state. Now, what also was very, very interesting is that these voices never came through his lips. They were heard around three feet away from him to the point where Leslie was able to speak and converse with the spirit voice that was coming through. Now, his work as a medium took off. He was super famous, super well-known in his area. He began to fill every seat in the biggest halls in and around London, and he had requests to travel abroad. However, this didn't come lightly. Leslie is one of the most tried and tested mediums with numerous people coming forward to test and experiment on him in the hope that they could prove he was a fraud. 
Now, Leslie demonstrated his direct voice gift through 35 years of seances, of performing in front of audiences, of giving those demonstrations. And there's approximately 500 tape recordings that were made in which you can clearly hear the voice of spirit speaking to their loved ones in their own recognizable voice. Now, you can find some of these recordings on a website that's called the Leslie Flint Trust website. So the Leslie Flint Trust. Have a little listen. That's all I'm going to tell you. This man is just remarkable. Now, he passed to the world of spirit at the age of 83 in April 1994, which actually doesn't seem that long ago, does it? And the last form of mediumship that we're looking at is what's known as channeling mediumship. But that's also strongly linked to chance mediumship that we've just mentioned, because the medium is permitting spiritual energy to be channeled through their energy from the spiritual realm through them to the physical realm. So I mentioned before about how a medium is like an anchor to that bridge. So if you think of spiritual energy to coming down into the medium and they're projecting it out. So the medium or even a healer is opening their energy to receive and channel higher vibrational energy through their physical body. This is mainly used when working as a healer and conducting a Reiki session. You'll see that the healer in fact, you won't see because your eyes are usually closed, but the healer is channeling that Reiki through their body into you. On a separate note to mediumship, I actually use channeling when I'm working with angels. So I record my readings, my angel readings, so I can pass them back to the sitter. And I'm channeling because I'm allowing angelic energy to come through me and project their voice into that reading. When this happens, I am aware of what's going on. I'm not totally disconnected, but I do allow angels to use my voice. So it's not uncommon during those readings to hear my voice change. I've even listened to a few of those reading back where I can hear it change. And it still blows my mind to this day. It really does. So let's look at another name that you may or may not have heard of. And that's a chap called Daryl Anker. So Daryl was born in Canada in October 1951 before moving to LA as a child as his father had dreams of fame and fortune. Now not a lot is known about Daryl's upbringing but being in the land of Hollywood as Daryl grew up he started his career as a special effects designer and he worked on films that you've probably heard of of Star Trek, Pirates of the Caribbean and iRobot. Now prior to Daryl working in this field. In 1973, it claimed that he witnessed two separate incidences of the UFO sighting. And this is what sparked his interest in otherworldly beings and dimensions. Now, he said these were close range, broad daylight sightings where there were multiple witnesses present on both occasions. So at each sighting, it was said he saw a dark, metallic, triangular craft about 30 feet on either side, there were three blue-white lights, one on each point, and one orange-red light in the centre. The craft in the first sighting was spotted about 150 feet away. In the second sighting, it was about 60 feet away. So from these experiences, Daryl began reading everything he could find. He browsed bookshelves for UFO literature, and he quickly discovered other books on numerous paranormal subjects, such as psychic powers, spirits, and channeling. He read a few of these as well as the UFO books so that he could broaden his research and gain a greater understanding of the metaphysical field of knowledge. Now, 10 years after his last sighting, Daryl began to practice channeling. 
And he started to receive information from an entity that is now known as a being called Bashar. If you've heard of Daryl and you've heard of Bashar, please forgive my pronunciation. I believe that's how you say that. Bashar is an Arabic word meaning messenger, or more specifically, bringer of good news. Now, Daryl was amazed by the consistency and quality of the information he was hearing on a variety of subjects. And this eventually led that entity to teach channeling to whoever wished to learn. So through Daryl, this Bashar was able to relay information on different subjects and topics to those who wanted to come and hear it. Now, at first, this did surprise Daryl because he assumed channeling was not something that could be taught. But nevertheless, he himself joined into different channeling classes, not intending to really be a channel himself, but to learn about the process by which this entity seemed capable of accessing volumes of information on endless subjects. So midway through one of his courses, he received what sounded like a telepathic message in his mind, and he became instantly aware of three things. The first thing was this message was from an extraterrestrial consciousness that is now known as the being called Bashar. Secondly, was that the UFO had seen prior was his ship, and that he remembered at some point in his life, that he had made an agreement to channel him. And thirdly, this time to channel was now. That agreement that he made, consciously or subconsciously, we don't know, was going to take place now. In this day, Daryl has been channeling Bashar for over 35 years. And during these channeling demonstrations, Bashar comes forward, uses Daryl's body, his voice, his energy to give information and messages on what people need to hear and know. Now, you can YouTube Daryl Anchor and you can see how he is as Daryl and how he is as Bashar. And you can see those differences there. He does always make it clear to people that you don't have to believe that Bashar is really an extraterrestrial in telepathic communication with him if you want to believe the words are coming from another part of his own consciousness that's fine Daryl has no way of 100% confirming and proving Bashar's existence to anyone but the most important thing is that with the information wherever it's coming from has made a difference to the people who've come to see Daryl in his demonstration including making a difference to his own life have a look on YouTube, see if you can see the differences. It's quite interesting. It's also quite interesting to see the subjects that Bashar talks about and the information he delivers, subjects that sometimes I can't even wrap my head around. But one thing that I thought was actually nice, he often, Bashar often suggests to people, live your dreams instead of merely dreaming about being alive, which I think is lovely. So that is it for today's episode. That's the different types of mediumships um, you can come across. You may have heard of them before, you may not have. But I hope you found this interesting. We're going to do something different for the next episode that I'm not going to tell you about. Usually I pre-warn you what's going to come next, and I'm not going to do that. So you're just going to have to wait and be excited for the next episode. So thank you so much for taking the time to give us a listen. You've been listening to Holly from the Workings of a Spiritual Mind. Wherever you may be, enjoy the rest of your day, your evening. Take care, stay safe.